I just lost it, just a second. I'll be reading from um, John 1, verses 29 through 34. John 1, 29 through 34. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is, this is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the, is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Before we get started, before we get started today, I want to uh, mention that this is our week of Bible camp, and so uh, several of our adults will be serving as staff at that week, and many of our students will be heading out there. Some are already there now, and others will be arriving this afternoon. Please keep them in your prayers that they'll have a wonderful week, that they'll grow closer to God, that they'll have a safe week, no injuries, no dangers, uh, no harm come to them, but most importantly, that by the end of the week they're closer to God than they were when they arrived. So keep them in your prayers this week. This morning we are going to continue our study called Name Dropping. We, for the past several weeks, have been engaged in this study of God's names, because as we discussed at the outset of this series, it's our responsibility to know God. And one of the ways God has made himself known to us is through his names, which are many throughout Scripture. Thus far, we've learned that, that God's personal name is Yahweh. That's the name he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It's a name that's made of simply of four consonants and means I am. From there, we learn that Abraham called God Yahweh Yireh. When God provided a substitutionary sacrifice in place of Isaac. And in that moment, all Abraham could do is worship Yahweh who provides. A couple of weeks ago, God, we saw, identified himself as Yahweh Rapha when he healed that bitter water at Marah so that the Israelites could drink. And he then told them that he is Yahweh who heals. Last week, I'm indebted to Ben McGreevy for filling in, and he did a lesson that showed us that Jesus referred to God as Abba when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that name speaks to the intimate father-child relationship that he desires to have with all of us. And this week, we'll return to the Old Testament. We'll return to the book of Exodus, to the 17th chapter, and progress through the narrative of the Bible as God's names continue to be dropped. And we come to our next name, which appears in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 17. 
The name is Yahweh Nissi, and it means Yahweh is my banner. Yahweh is my banner. Now that may seem like an odd name to you and I. It may not make much sense to us at face value. But you need to understand a little something about the purpose of banners in order to appreciate this name. One author pointed out that banners have been important throughout history as visible declarations of authority. They show whom you represent and to whom you are committed. Pictured on the screen is one of the most famous images in American history. It's called Raising the Flag on Iwo Jima. It was taken on February 23, 1945, atop Mount Suribachi during the Battle of Iwo Jima in the final stages of combat on the Pacific Front during World War II. In this picture, six Marines were charged with the duty of planting an American flag on top of that 554-foot mountain. It, it was actually the second flag raising on that mountain that day. It was sent up as a replacement flag for the original flag because they decided for sentimental reasons they wanted to bring the original flag down and save it and they wanted a bigger flag flying on top of that mountain but the presence of that flag on that precipice was important it brought about the cheers and the rallying of the troops during that campaign because it was visibly demonstrating the success of their mission and reminding them of who and what they were fighting for. It was their banner. And while old glory is the banner for our country, this text in Exodus chapter 17 is telling us that Yahweh Nisi is the banner for our lives. You see, Moses called the altar he built that day, the Lord is my banner. After he held up his staff all day as a visible representation of Yahweh's involvement in a battle that day. So just as that flag on Iwo Jima was the banner of those American soldiers, Moses is saying that Yahweh Nissi is the banner of those Israelite soldiers. And by declaring God to be Yahweh Nissi, what Moses is ultimately saying is that Yahweh is for whom he fights. That Yahweh is the authority to which he submits. That Yahweh is the one he represents. That Yahweh is the focal point of his life. That Yahweh is the one to which he is committed. And to be honest with that explanation... I could easily wrap up this lesson and we could all go home. And some of you would like that. I might even like that. I could simply tell you that our big takeaway from this name is that our banner, Yahweh Nissi, is the one to whom we should swear our allegiance. And that would be a powerful message in and of itself. But there's more to this name that's worthy of our attention today, and that's what we'll spend our time looking into. See, when we hear this name, Yahweh Nissi, when we recall and see that Yahweh is our banner, what we need to realize is that this name, Yahweh Nissi, is associated with battle. This particular name of God is dropped after Yahweh in the context of war. 
Look again at what the text says in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. This other people, the Amalekites, we'll talk about them in a minute, they show up and they initiate war with the Israelites. And it's after this factor that Yahweh Nissi is going to be named. And what you need to know is that this is not just any battle. This is the first battle faced by the Israelites since their exodus from Egypt. You might remember that when they initially left Egypt, Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 tells us that God did not lead them by way of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. In other words, God initially protected the children of Israel upon the start of that exodus from encountering war in its earliest days because he did not want them to get discouraged and want to go back. Yahweh initially protected his people from war so that they could rebuild their strength after years of enslavement, so that they could rebuild their trust in a God that they thought was absent for 400 years, so that they could be prepared when battle did come. But this protection was never meant to be permanent, so after they had been given adequate opportunity to learn to trust Yahweh by witnessing him make undrinkable water drinkable, by witnessing him provide daily rations of manna and quail from heaven, and by witnessing his provision of water out of a rock in the event that immediately preceded this one in Exodus chapter 17, after experiencing all that and building a renewed relationship with him in which they could trust him, he allowed them to face war. And notice who they were fighting. Amalek. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, according to Genesis chapter 36 and verse 12. These are the same people, the Amalekites are the same people who joined forces with King Eglon of Moab and subjugated the Israelites until Ehud ignited a revolution in Judges chapter 3. These Amalekites are the same people who joined forces with the Midianites to raid and pillage Israel during times of harvest until God used Gideon to defeat them with torches and trumpets in Judges chapter 6. And these are the same people who King Saul was ordered to devote to destruction because they opposed Israel when they came up out of Egypt in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. So the children of Israel, who for the past few centuries have been nothing more than slaves in a foreign land, have received their freedom by the grace of God, and while peacefully relocating to their new home, are attacked by a tribe of marauders, and now have to muster an army to defend themselves despite the fact that they have little military experience. And while this may have been the first battle that the children of God had to face, it certainly wasn't the last. Because the Bible says that God's children today are engaged in a spiritual war. Do you remember how Paul introduced his overview of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12? 
He wrote these words. He said, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Elsewhere, Paul told the church in Corinth that though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And what such passages are telling us is that there is a spiritual war happening all around us. We might not be able to perceive it all the time, but we are certainly engaged in it. It is a spiritual battle for our allegiance. And to succeed in this battle, we're instructed to put on the armor of God, which consists of the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and so on. In addition to that, we're instructed to stand firm in the faith, to take every thought captive to obey Christ, to pray at all times in the Spirit, and to be sober-minded and watchful. We have this abundance of passages that are telling us we're at war. And we have this abundance of passages that are telling us how to be equipped and ready for combat. You see, like the Israelites at Rephidim, we are in a war. We didn't initiate it. We didn't necessarily provoke it. We just entered a world in which Satan has established himself as our adversary who is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we found ourselves at war. But unlike the Israelites at Rephidim, we have been forewarned and we have been equipped. We can thank Yahweh Nissi for sounding the alarm and providing us with a military strategy, so to speak. But that also means that those of us who are in Christ are without excuse when it comes to the spiritual war. The Bible made us aware that it exists, and the Bible told us how to fight. So we better take up arms. We better put on the armor of God. We better follow his strategy if we want to succeed in this battle. And we better play our part. Because the name Yahweh Nissi is also associated with cooperation. You know, up to this point in the Exodus narrative, God had not made the Israelites do anything to resolve their conflicts. He required nothing of the Israelites up to this point. In fact, if you journey back to Exodus chapter 14, when they found themselves trapped between the Red Sea and an approaching Egyptian army, God didn't instruct them to strap on their swords and go to war. Instead, look at what he told them via Moses, verse 13 and 14 of Exodus 14. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Their one job that day was to just be silent and let the Lord work. That's all God required of them. And sometimes that's all God requires of us. But there are other occasions. 
when he's going to need his people to do something. See, when the Amalekites attacked, God required his people to participate in the solution for the first time. They didn't have to do anything for that manna to show up on the ground and for those quail to show up in the evening. They didn't have to do anything for that water to be converted from an undrinkable state to a drinkable state. They didn't have to do anything for that water to come out of that rock. God handled all of those things himself. But now it's time for them to be actively involved and to demonstrate their trust in Yahweh Nissi. And so, look at Exodus chapter 17, verse 9 and 11, through 11, and notice the strategy that was employed by Yahweh. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. The strategy here is twofold. First, it involved Joshua leading the fight in the valley. The people had a part to play. They had work to do. They had responsibility to fulfill. Had Joshua and the Israelite fighting men not engaged in battle down in that valley, they, they, would they have been victorious? If they hadn't taken up arms and gone into battle, would God have brought them the victory? Now, God didn't need them. We know God is capable of succeeding without us, but when God orders us to do something and we don't do it, we're not diminishing His ability. We're simply disobeying His command. He may be the one that provides the growth, but He expects us to plant the seed and water the seed, as 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7 indicates. And so the first part of this strategy is for Joshua to lead the fight in the valley. And as a side note, this is the very first time Joshua ever gets mentioned in Scripture. The second part of the strategy for Moses to go up on a mountain. Joshua's in the valley with the people fighting. Moses is up on the hill. And what is Moses doing on that mountain? The text simply says he held up his hands while holding the staff of God. Now, you need to understand that was no ordinary staff. That was the staff that touched the Nile and turned it into blood in Exodus chapter 7. That was the staff that was held out over the Red Sea and separated it so that the Israelites could walk across on dry land in Exodus chapter 14. That was the staff in the story that immediately preceded this one that struck that rock in order for water to gush out and quench the thirst of all the Israelites. That was the staff of God. It was no ordinary staff. And it was no ordinary stance on top of that mountain either. Moses had stood in that stance before. Back in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 28, Pharaoh had had enough of the plague of the hail and the thunder. And he told Moses that he had sinned and asked him to plead with the Lord on his behalf. So Moses responded in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 29 by saying, 
As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hell so that you know that the earth is Yahweh's. When Moses stretched out his hands in Exodus chapter 9, and when Moses held up his hands here in Exodus chapter 17, he was communicating with God. He was engaged in prayer. He was enlisting God's help. He was pleading with God. So Moses was on top of that mountain praying while Joshua was in the valley fighting. It was a cooperative effort that day. A cooperative effort in which God's people did their part while simultaneously petitioning him to do his. And that's important for us to recognize. Because Israel's participation and our participation was never meant to replace God's involvement. We should never take the approach that we've got this on our own. We should understand that God expects us to act, that God expects us to do, that God expects us to fulfill His commands. But that does not mean that we operate apart from Him. It's still His battle. It's still His victory. We're just agents through whom He operates. And Israel learned this the hard way. Sometime later, the Israelites were on the border of Canaan preparing to enter when Yahweh instructed them to spy out the land, Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. Twelve spies were sent, and they came back with a consensus report regarding the quality of the land. But they disagreed with regard to their ability to conquer it. Ten of the spies said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Despite the fact that they had Yahweh Nissi on their side, they felt inadequate. The people then listened to those ten detractors, and in so doing, they angered Yahweh because they did not trust in him. So Yahweh declared in Numbers chapter 14, verse 20 through 23, Truly as I live and as all of the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. He then ordered the people to return to the wilderness to wander for the next 40 years, so that none of the adults alive at that time would be allowed entrance into the promised land. And upon hearing that consequence... Upon hearing that they have to return to wandering, upon hearing that they're going to be out there for 40 years, all of a sudden the people were ready to enter the land. All of a sudden they had a change of heart. All of a sudden, let's go. We can take this land now. But God said no. God said you missed your shot. God had already made up his mind not to allow this generation into Canaan. So look at what Moses said in Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 41. He spoke to the people saying, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you. 
lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. Moses gives as strict of a warning as he can. He tells them, don't do this because God's not going to be with you. You will be on your own and you will fail. And verses 44 and 45 tell us that they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them. That's the same Amalekites that Israel handily defeated at Rephidim when Moses was on the mountain and Joshua was in the valley. When the Lord was their banner. But when Israel tried to fight the Amalekites without the Lord, they were quickly defeated. And the point is that you can't do spiritual battle on your own. The conquest of Amalek was contingent on God's people doing their part while he did his. The defeat by the Amalekites was because the people did something God told them not to do and God was not with them. As one author said, only when we bring the valley and the mountain together will we experience victory. See, Paul referred to Christians as God's fellow workers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. God's design for the Israelites and for us as his children, is for us to be his fellow workers. For us to be in a cooperative mission with him to accomplish his will, even though he could accomplish his will without us. When we're not pursuing his will, and when we don't have him on our side, we will always fail. But if we cooperate in his mission according to his standards, with him as the banner, we will always succeed. And that brings us to the last thing you need to know about Yahweh Nissi. The name Yahweh Nissi is associated with victory. So Yahweh Nissi means Yahweh is my banner. I want you to think about how we use banners today. One of the most common uses of a banner is to announce victory. When a sports team wins a championship, whether it's on the high school level, the college stage, or in professional sports, they display their success with a banner, a flag, or a pennant. Just like our Atlanta Braves did after they won their 21st division title, 18th National League pennant, and 4th World Series championship, which you may not be able to see too well, but that's the best picture I could get. They have added another pennant up there, but I wanted to stick with the World Series. We display our victories with banners. And Yahweh Nissi, who is our banner, is a name of victory. Yahweh Nissi is a declaration of victory because this name is associated with Israel's defeat of the Amalekites and the announcement in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 14 that Yahweh will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Yahweh announces after his name is declared that he's going to have final say about the Amalekites. That he's going to blot out their name in perpetuity. Here's something that's interesting. We've noted several firsts 
with this account. It was the first battle the Israelites faced. It was the first mention of Joshua. It was the first time God required his people to do something. And interestingly, this is the first appearance of a divine instruction to record something in written form. If you look there at the start of Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, Moses is instructed to write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Yahweh Nissi wanted this promise to be recorded. Yahweh Nissi wanted his people to remember that he gave them victory over the Amalekites, a people who would frustrate them time and time again until he ultimately destroyed them through the efforts of King Saul, Samuel, and King David. In fact, the Amalekites are not mentioned again after the reign of David, except in Psalm chapter 83 and verse 7, which was written by Asaph, an appointee of David at the temple. You won't see them again after that. No mention of them in the Bible whatsoever after that. And just because that promise was fulfilled, that promise to blot out the memory of Amalek, just because that promise was fulfilled, doesn't mean that Yahweh Nissi is done being victorious. Through Jesus Christ, God achieved the ultimate victory. Because Jesus because Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil, as 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 says. And he fulfilled that mission. He fulfilled that mission through his own death, which destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25 and 26 says that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, and that last enemy will be destroyed at the last trumpet, because when the trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised imperishable, and the living will put on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 57, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And while the memory of Amalek was blotted out by Yahweh Nissi, Jesus declares in, Romans, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5 that he will never, he will never, he will never blot out of the book of life the name of the one who conquers. Instead, he will confess his name before my, his father and before his angels. And it's all because Yahweh Nissi is our victory banner. This morning, we study this name, and it may not be one that you readily think of when it comes to the names of God. 
It appears in a story that can easily be overlooked, a story that is not a VBS spectacular. It comes in connection with the concept of battle. But it reminds us that we're in a battle. It comes as a name that speaks to our cooperation with the Lord in His mission, fulfilling His will. But most importantly, it's a name that provides a constant reminder of His victory for us. And so the question we must ask ourselves today is, have I, have you, raised the victory banner in your life? If not, you can do that today by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Have you put on Christ in baptism but still find yourself wrestling against the rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual forces of evil? Well, Yahweh Nissi is here to help you. He'll equip you. And he'll enlist your help. So today, we invite you to pledge your allegiance to Yahweh Nissi, your one true banner, while together we stand and sing. While as ransom ones we sing, marching on, marching on, for Christ can everything but lost, and to crown him king, toll and sing, neath the banner of the cross, over land and sea, where and may dwell, make the glorious tidings known. Of the crimson banner, now the story tell, while the Lord shall claim his own. Marching on, marching on, for Christ kept everything but lost, and to crown him visiting with us, we appreciate your presence today, and we ask you to, as our members, to um, fill out the business card, members card, with, using your QR code, and um, we ask you to be back tonight, 6 o'clock, for our afternoon service.
We will have a closing song. We will ask you to sit after we have our closing prayer. Higher ground. Uh, we sing the first, second, and fourth stanza, and this is just like the song. It just has an echo. All right. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity we've had here today to come together without uh, oppression to uh, worship you in a way that we see from your word and uh, to praise you and honor you, Father. And we just thank you for that opportunity. We thank you for your love for us that you'd provide for us, Father, in a way that uh, fills our hearts with joy and, and uh, love for you, Father, and love for each other. Be with us as we leave here today that we might take what we've heard today in our lesson and our Bible studies that will help us to uh, grow spiritually and uh, be better examples for Jesus, better examples to those around us, Father, in this world. Uh, be with those that have been mentioned on our prayer list today, Father, and we ask you to heal them if possible and bring them back with us to be with us. Uh, and, of course, uh, forgive us for our sins, for we fall short. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
We want to take a moment to honor a man who served as an elder for quite a few years, did an uh, outstanding job, and we just can't let him go with just letting him go, so we have a gift for him just so he can remember how much we appreciate the years of service he gave to this congregation. I have a plaque here that says, presented to Stan Nutt in recognition of his leadership energy and tireless dedication as a shepherd of the Buford Church of Christ. October 18, 2009 to April 17, 2023, Buford Church of Christ, Buford, Georgia. And then the Bible scripture, 1 Timothy 5:17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Everything I have to, I, I couldn't think of enough things to say. I enjoyed serving with him. He has served this church with a lot of patience, with a lot of dedication. And we uh, didn't know whether to get him a plaque, we wrestled with that, or maybe a, a nice tattoo or something like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so this plaque, and he'll be glad to show it to you. We give you this, and we love you, brother. Love you too, brother. Thank you. Good man.